Episode 76 of The Passive Hang, it's found here, and we are joined by Odie Babili, who is better known as at Learning to Human on Instagram. Odie is an online coach for handstands, mobility, flexibility, and bodyweight strength. I reached out to Odie because I noticed his content on Instagram a lot because it really shows a deep understanding of the topics that he is talking about. He really points out a lot of nuance and details which actually matter and that was something that I wanted to find out a bit more. Who was the man behind all this great content and all this great understanding? What was his journey? Where did he come from? How did he come to be where he is today? We deep dive into how to approach learning the press to handstand and it was really interesting hearing Odie's approach and why he prefers his approach. Something out there for people both learning but also who are teaching others in their press to handstand journey. Odie also shares his approach to how he became an online coach. Very practical tips in this one. And we touch on his passion for spearfishing. There's something for everyone in this episode. I really enjoyed it. I know you guys are too and we're going to get started. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of The Passive Hang. Today, we are joined by Erdi Barbili, who is better known on Instagram as Learning to Human, at Learning to Human, which I must say is a really awesome Instagram tag. I'm glad that you got that one and it went to a, a good person. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just wanted to welcome you on the podcast uh, and find out a bit more about your journey. Um, I know you've share quite a lot on Instagram as well, not only in terms of a lot of practical tips with physical development, but actually your own story as well, not only like your recent journeys, but also your previous history uh, through being a personal trainer to, I know you've mentioned like you did a lot of group classes, owned a gym, a space as well, and now you're an online trainer who is looking to come to Australia next year, which I'm secretly a little bit excited about, but I thought a good place to start that I wanted to ask you about or more about is your passion for spearfishing, actually, and just dive a little bit into that because that's something that I've done once and it was an amazing experience. Uh, but yeah, where did this all come about? Because to my knowledge, you live in London. I don't think there are many spearfishing opportunities in the river there, but how how did this all come to be? Hey, Cleon. Um, yeah, I've I've never actually seen anyone spearfishing in in the River Thames. I don't know if there'd be anything anything good to catch in there apart from maybe some remnant foods of like the previous night out from people in London. Um, I'm so I'm from originally from North Cyprus. That's where my background and family are from. Um, but I've been born and raised in London. However, every summer we'd go to North Cyprus for our sort of family summer holidays and, and trips. We'd usually be there for two weeks. And my dad and my uncle would spearfish. Uh, so as a kid, I would be paddling in, in the in the shop, just in the, on the beach. And my, my I'd watch my dad and uncle like go off with their guns and their fins and masks. And they'd come back like a few hours later with some octopus, some fish, um, different types of species, and they'd be Put in, would, would then like put it on the barbecue Amazing. by the coast. Yeah, have a nice little barbecue. And when I got to the age of 13, my dad got me my first spear gun. And he was like, all right, you're coming with us. 
let's see what you can do. And he you know, showed me the different fish and he's like, here, try shooting this, try shooting that. And then uh, that's, that's how it developed. So we would just um, uh, be exposed to it in our summer holidays, really. And I mean, 13, some of those fish that sometimes you pull out are pretty big as well. There must have been... Tell us like an interesting story with, I'm sure there was like a incursions somewhere where you were going deep in within the spearfishing and, you know, something, something happened. But uh, yeah, for me, I know sometimes still diving into the ocean, it's quite scary. You know, it's like the unknown when you're viewing it from the top, but uh, yeah, take us through sort of those moments. Um, so when I, I mean, when I was young, we were doing it in Cyprus there were probably not too many like there's nothing that really stands out in terms of something that's gone wrong or like a, a dangerous sort of incident um cyprus is very tame it's in the mediterranean sea and it's been heavily overfished and also we don't really get any exciting species um we get like there's, there's some nice grouper there's some nice sea bream um and at the moment there's a lot of uh, invasive species about there's one in particular is the lionfish. I'm not actually sure if you get them in Australia, but they do come from the Pacific, the Indo-Pacific. Um, however, we like so many years later after trying lots of spearfish in Cyprus, I've, I then decided to try it in different waters because I wanted to experience different marine life and different ecosystems. Uh, and we went to actually went to Miami and the Florida Keys with my girlfriend Sarah mm -hmm. in two, 2019. Um, I'd never spearfished in Miami or that side of um, the US before in the Keys, but we really wanted to go because it looks it looked amazing. And we found a little uh, tour guide to take us out. It was a snorkeling guide. It was like a contact for a contact for a contact. Um, and he was like, yeah, I'll take you guys out. He, I mean, he wasn't a spearfishing guide himself, but he was just the guy who did spearfishing, who also happened to boat, happened to ha own a boat and mm -hmm. wanted to make some extra money. So he paid him for a day trip and he takes us out to the, the mangroves in the Keys. Um, and we get in for our first dive. Uh, and we can see some, like, what are they called? Mangrove snapper? Yeah, there's there's like these these specific fish that people mm. like to catch over there. And we're hunting them. And all of a sudden, he's like, all right, now slowly make your way back to the boat. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I was already right near the boat and Sarah was a bit further out. Mm -hmm. So like, I come over to the boat and he's like, no, 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 come come over to, I don't think Sarah could hear him. He's like, come yeah. to the boat. Yeah. It's like, you need to get on the boat. And by this point I'd got on the boat and I'm like, what's going on? He's like, there's a, what was it? I think it was a lemon shark, like in the water, not far from where we were. Wow. Um, was it lemon shark, tiger shark? Man, I forgot the species. And he's like, you need to get Sarah to come back on the boat. I'm like, Sarah, so like we're trying to call her, like her head's on the water. She can't hear very yeah. well. Uh, so we're calling her, calling her. She's like, what? What's going on? Like, just get on the boat. You need to come back on the boat. So in context, there's not many sharks that will cause any damage um, or even like go for humans, especially a lot of the, the types of sharks that you do get in, in the Keys in Miami. But um, I think it was the lemon shark. I don't know why I'm getting confused between lemon and tiger. This specific shark, it's it's not been known to attack, uh, to, to like just randomly attack humans, but there's been a few cases. And it was this, this mm. guy's first spearfishing trip, like as a tour guide, we were his first client. So he was a bit <laughs> worried for us. <laughs> He's like, fuck, I don't want these guys to get bit by a shark on their first trip. Um, 
anyway, Sarah like slowly starts making her way over to the boat. She realizes that she needs to come back on. And I can just like see this like shade of a huge shark. It's like seven, eight foot in the water, not far from Sarah. Mm. Um, and she's like, I can't see it. I was like, don't worry. Don't look for it. Just, just slowly make your way back on the boat. Anyway, she gets on the boat. Everything's fine. But, uh, and then I'll, I'll talk guy Jimmy. He was like, yeah, okay. So we're going to go to a different spot now. <laughs> but uh, that was probably like the, the, one of the most exciting things that I guess has happened. Well, I've been in the water. Like we've we've seen sharks in the water, especially mm-hmm. in the Keys. We saw some reef sharks, and they're no big deal. But for whatever reason, this shark in particular, he didn't really want us to get too close to. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I, I know when you're in the water, and whenever you see something big, it, there's just always a sense of awe, whether whether it's a shark or not. You know, there's there's always like this level of respect, right? Because yep. in the water, I mean. It's funny, like on the ground, I think we can move in so many like complex, different sort of ways. But then in the water, I mean, you can only go so fast and you're really down the pecking order to some of these bigger animals, especially in the water, I, I find. So, yeah, yeah, there's always that that level of, okay, when you're in there, you just, uh, I like how you guys did it just like not overly panic, but you're just like, okay, let's just extract ourselves from this situation and, and yeah. leave. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's not an environment where like as humans, we, we thrive in, in terms of our movement capacity. Like we're, we're developed in a way to like be able to hold our breath for a little while. Um, and we have something called the mammalian dive reflex, which mm. helps us hold our breath for longer, um, which is great. But we can we can't move in the water like you're saying the same way we can move on land so if you need to like run jump hide on land you can but if you're in in the ocean and something's coming at you i mean it's it's very unlikely like it just it doesn't happen but it's still in the back of your head like who knows like this is an unfamiliar territory um you can't run hide or jump you you can like you can swim but you can't swim anywhere to hide so and you can't swim faster than what's swimming at you and you can't move faster than what's moving at you either. So yeah, you kind of like, all right, I need to, I need to get back on the boat. <laughs> and when you're spearfishing, is this normally, yeah, you're like free diving with like snorkels or you do it with, with scuba. And um, we've never done it with scuba. It's frowned upon, upon by a lot of the spearfishing community. Although there are a lot of a few places in the world where it is legal to scuba dive and spearfish at the same time but yeah we just do it with a snorkel so you, you hold your breath mm-hmm. um, or you you do your breathe up on the, on the surface where you snorkel in you hold your breath go down uh, hold it for as long as you can or as long as you want to and then come back up yeah yeah and can you talk a little bit to you know you just mentioned some of like that mammalian dive reflex and yep. i know with free divers there's a, i mean there's a whole physical art dedicated to extending your breath hold, right? So have you done any physical training around that to help with your spearfishing endeavors? Yes, actually. So when I first started uni, university, I found out that there was a sport known as freediving. Now, by this point, I had already been spearfishing in Cyprus and nowhere else other than Cyprus, actually. Started university at age of 19 and I found um, a club. It was called an octopus club, also known as underwater hockey. I don't actually know how much of it there is in the US, although I do remember New Zealand's got a very strong team. So it's basically, it's a, it's a sport, it's a team sport, six people either side, and you've got four subs, substitutes on the, the edge of the swimming pool. And you play it in like a 25 meter pool. Um, 
each side has got a trough, like a goal, and you're trying to push this like weighted puck along mm -hmm. the bottom of the pool with a small stick in your hand. The stick is like the size of a banana. They call it a pusher. So you dive down, you've got like mask and snorkel and fins, you're diving down on your breath hold, you're pushing this um, puck to the other end of the pool, passing it to your teammates, they're passing it back and you're scoring goals. And I can't remember the, how long it was. I think it was like 20, 30 minute matches. So I found this sport in Freshers Week uh, in, uh, when I first started university. So the first week of uni and I was like, oh, wow. I want to play this. Like I like spearfishing. I like wearing masks, snorkels and fins. I like holding my breath. I'm going to play this. And, and I, I started playing that. I played it for the whole four years that I was at university. Um, and in the first year I've made some friends in that club and they told me about this activity called freediving. They're like, Oh, you'd really enjoy freediving. I said, like, what's freediving? And they're like, yeah, that's when you hold your breath underwater. I was like, I, I've been doing that since I was 13 or I've been doing it from earlier than 13, but mm -hmm. I'd been, um, you know, practicing that on holiday, I didn't know it was an actual sport. I didn't know there was a name for it. So I started YouTubing it. I found out there was a club, a freediving club, like not far from the city that I was in. I was studying in York, University of York, and there was um, a freediving club in Manchester, which was like just over an hour's train ride. So every Sunday I would go over to Manchester and I would like go to their freediving uh, pool sessions where they teach us how to hold your breath up for a bit longer. I did a free a freediving course with a guy named Steve, um, from the, the Manchester club and he basically taught you some techniques and explained the theory and things about the mammalian dive reflex and he's like okay this is what you need to work on this is what you need to like focus on to try and help you dive for longer if you do want to dive longer but also this is how you do it safely because it is a it is a dangerous sport at the end of the day it's not something that you want to do by yourself or just want to rush or or kind of push past your limits you know like when you're in the gym you're lifting weights it's like yeah okay you can go to failure if you go to failure when you're free diving right you're in trouble yeah. <laughs> you're gonna pass out <laughs> yeah so um yeah we, we, and i did did some free diving courses with steve went to the free diving sessions um and that's that sort of helped with a lot of my appreciation for actual i guess spearfishing and how to develop it a little bit more as well which was nice i mean by no means am i like good when it if, if i'm if we're comparing to people who actually practice it every weekend and have been for like you know the past five to ten years mm -hmm. um as you know I've, i live in london so i only kind of get to do it when i travel but it's something that i do really enjoy and have been trying to improve over the last year or so where i have been traveling more to spearfishing destinations yeah uh, i've done the a free diving training once before and nice. even in the pool when you do a really long breath hold, it's a really scary thing because when you're pushing to that limit, you do have it in the back of the, I mean, it's sort of your natural reaction, right? That is like, okay, if I ran out of breath, it's not like, as you say, in the gym where you can just drop the weight or like the rep just doesn't happen, but it's yeah. like, oh, maybe like I could die. Like if I don't <laughs> breathe and you have to, you have to work against that natural reflex to calm yourself down. And I find that dynamic very, very interesting in terms yeah. of, yeah, being aware of actually your increased potential beyond what, uh, uh, like you, you, you can hold a lot longer than what you actually just consciously think if you're able to really calm yourself and your mental state down. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, 
Are you able to just speak a little bit about that and whether that, you know, has affected things outside of just the scope of spearfishing and freediving itself? It's a, it's a huge psychological game. That's true. Just before I go into it, did you feel the tingles? Did you like ever hold your breath long enough that you started feeling tingles and like, yeah. Yeah. I got the tingles and I got the um, little impulses to like take in a breath, like coming up my throat as yeah. well. That's the contractions. And, and yeah, that was, that was scary. <laughs> Okay, so the contractions are very normal. Um, they're just like a, a reflex to try and breathe. Um, they're usually triggered by high CO2 levels in the blood and the body. So when you hold your breath, your carbon dioxide levels in the body start to increase. O2 technically is like decreases as a ratio to the carbon dioxide. Um, and then with the carbon dioxide triggers that want an urge to breathe. So you, like, you start getting these abdominal contractions um, and sometimes like you fill it up into the throat. Uh, but yeah, the tingles, however, are not very normal because they, they usually indicate you're very close to like pretty much passing out usually. Um, so when you feel okay. the tingles, it's like, okay, I need to come up, but you don't always get them. Sometimes you might pass out before you get tingles. So you want to be careful with that. And that's why they say always dive with a buddy. Uh, but yeah, pretty, um, a really psychological game, uh, if you want to call it a game it's you know people talk about like training to be quite psychological i don't know mm -hmm. if you heard of like the term of you know bodybuilders going into the into the weight room and fighting their demons and going yeah. to war with themselves and you know picking up the weight and so and it is psychological like don't get me wrong that you can you can apply a good mindset to anything and get more out of whatever it is you're doing but when you're when you're free diving as soon as you like start having these negative thoughts or any doubt in your in your breath hold you're now indirectly consuming more oxygen like your your heart rate goes up a little bit your um oxygen consumption increases a little bit through the muscles through the body uh, and you are indirectly just massively reducing the performance of the set that you're in like there's been a lot a lot of cases with free divers and they'll, they'll talk about it when you know they're going for like a nice deep dive and all of a sudden they just get these i don't, I don't want to say like faults but like doubts into their dive they're like oh wait even though they've done that dive so many times and that depth they're like hmm but what, what about right now i'm kind of tired or this happened last night maybe i'm not ready and as soon as you start like doubting yourself you're like okay cool time to come back up i'm not gonna even try going any further and because it just completely ruins your the your mindset and then your ability to hold your breath for longer so there is a a big focus on trying to stay calm like you were saying and the, the calmer you can stay, technically, the less oxygen that you're consuming. Uh, the less oxygen you're consuming, um, then the more you have in reserve for your lungs and for your brain. At the end of the day, it's like you need to keep your brain um, with as much oxygen as you can so you can kind of last for as long as you can. Uh, and obviously in the lungs as well. Does it transfer much to outside of freediving? Yeah, it's... It, so so if i think about it but i don't think anything like i haven't seen any transfer elsewhere and other than like just maybe being able to relax a little bit more i mean my girlfriend's gonna laugh if she hears that she's always telling me i need to relax more and i don't relax enough <laughs> but uh <laughs> but you know i mean it, i i can i can i feel like i can switch off a little bit easier if i choose to try and switch off a little bit easier and just let things relax and, and settle. Uh, a lot of the, the free diving 
uh, training is about, especially the preparation before a big dive will be um, almost like a meditative relaxation type practice where they're just trying to soften everything in the body, try and let go of like any excess tension and whatever. So just, I don't know, maybe you guys have done some of the practices before where you just lay down on your back and you like, you scan your body from like your head to your toes. You, you bring your focus to every part of the body and you'll notice, oh, actually my right bicep for whatever reason is contracting a little bit or my left shoulder is a little bit higher. I like actively, my trap is pulling it higher than it should mm. be. Let me just focus on that breathe and i can just let it relax and you go a bit lower on my diaphragm or my hip or my left glute whatever so it's helped with being able to um kind of like take us just a little stop a little pause just give everything a a quick scan let it settle and then move on Mm. like tension is a physiological response to a psychological um cause like stress you know if you're if you're stressed you will just tense up more naturally so if you can if you can relax the tension generally you can alleviate the stress if that Mm -hmm. makes sense or at least help mitigate it a little bit and again you ask my girlfriend and she'll laugh at you for me (laughs) for saying that but it like it can help (laughs) yeah i i certainly notice in my own practices as well that the physical affects the mental state and vice versa as well. So like you mentioned, when you notice the physical signs of tension or buildup of like, you know, like a a knotting in your body that you're able to let go as well, it also does change your mental state after you you let that go as well. And I think this is an interesting area because I find especially once training for a longer amount of time. And then due to that, you're getting into your training, maybe you're in- increasing your training frequency, you're increasing your training intensity as well, that on the other side of the spectrum, the ability to relax, to downregulate, to notice all these signals as well, are really, at least for me, have been keys to helping stay quite consistent with my practice without going just hitting a wall and like going over the top, which I certainly have done in previous years when I was much younger, where I thought I was like, you just keep on going, 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 going. Like I remember one moment I used to play like field hockey and I was obsessed with like squatting and deadlifting really heavy. And I didn't want to give that up at all. So I would like do heavy squats and deadlifts and then go do like a two hour running session on, on field hockey. And, you know, that didn't go so well after <laughs> uh, after a while. Um, but yeah, I, I never had any type of opposite quality practices to help me down-regulate as well. So I do believe that sort of area, um, I've got a huge appreciation for it. Nice. Yeah, I get you. Um, I think that's where like handstands come into it for a lot of the, the movement crowd as well. Like I'm, I'm not really someone who practices the whole stillness side of things or much meditation. I've actually, I've been trying to do a little bit of meditation recently, but haven't been able to create like a consistent routine with it. Um, but when I'm, when I'm free diving, it will happen naturally. Like you have to, you can't, you can't be excited. You can't be um, yeah. agitated or too hyped, but uh, and the same for handstands. You can't go into a handstand session. I mean, some people argue against it, you, but you can't really go into a handstand session like super pumped and like ready to do all your reps and sets and 
and jump around and you know be a be super energetic you need to be in focused um so i think the handstand practice kind of helps with that uh if you're not you know doing the, another side of down regulating like you were mentioning um but yeah the, the free diving definitely is a big one for at least for me yeah and you know just to wrap this topic up i mean what's your most proudest catch been in all your adventures oh man it was so it was i this this year was it this year yeah this year i was in the azores for three months with sarah and uh, my friend out there Guy. he's a he's a great spearfisher and he took me out to some spots um to try and catch some slightly bigger fish off of his boat uh, off, of, off of his friend's boat you can always find bigger fish when you go offshore and um, when you're diving from the shore it's you're a bit more limited usually depending on the location but in like 90 percent of the places it's like that and we were out and we caught or I, I managed to catch a barracuda which was just over five kilos which isn't huge like um, again i'm not like a a, a massive spearfisher in terms of like um great catches but for me it was big because i'm from like the village in cyprus where we would catch nothing larger than a kilo right and then yeah. like a, a kilo of a fish if you, if you found a fish that was a kilo you like you're lucky it's, it's <laughs> not it's not an easy find whereas in the azores it's like if you're catching anything under a kilo or two kilos it's uh you, you just get out the water like you don't belong <laughs> so it was very very different sort of um, mentality so anyway we find this barracuda i think it was 5.5 kilos and that for me was the best my favorite catch uh, one of my favorite catches because it was just a really rough day he took me out it was very um choppy the currents were super strong i threw up that day actually in that session i think three times i threw up in the ocean uh, just from like being continuously bounced around in the water and we were in the water for like three hours looking for fish and we couldn't find anything until right at the end where I finally saw like a school of barracuda and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go get one and then I'm going to get on the boat and I'm going to stay on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. unless it, that's what happened. Well, you came back triumphant and I can only imagine as well, once you actually catch one of these things, like then, you know, you have to also still like reel it in as well. Yeah. It's like the bigger the fish, the more powerful they're going to be to keep on swimming away. So I can only imagine like, the struggle to actually get that in so yeah good, good work. thanks luckily that one wasn't it wasn't too bad but um it was a it was a really good meal i fed it to a group of my friends and we had a great night but yeah, that that was a, a one to remember i actually made a video a youtube video on that specific hunt but uh, I'll, I'll send you the link later <laughs> awesome well yeah anyone interested let's watch the video um yeah. so i mean jumping over to i guess your own sort of movement journey as well uh i mean i've seen you post uh, about your own journey both with um i guess your development from being in the position that you are now where you're an online coach to when you are you were first starting out training people and teaching people and i think there was a, a really interesting photo of you in um in what was used to be like your pancake position as well it was oh, yeah. Yeah, very different to <laughs> what you are now, which is I love seeing those type of progress photos because it, it just shows what is actually, you know, like what is what is available to you with such with a long 
long-term practice and, and consistency, but maybe like when you first started, bring us back to that point, like what was happening then? How did you get into this whole space? So uh, where do I start this one? Um, all right, very, very briefly. I was first ever interested in physical exercise. It was actually around the age of 13 when we had a school trip coming up and I wanted to look good on this school trip because it was a water sports trip and and obviously would be in swimming shorts and I was at school and I didn't really have much going for me. I wasn't very confident, didn't have a good physique, nothing. I was like, all right, I need some abs. Like as long as if I can just get some abs, at least it would it'll be like one point. Nice <laughs> you know, classic. At the time I had, yeah, add zero points. So um spoke to my stepdad, got me a chin up bar, got me a sit up bench and just got into like some conventional sit ups and chin ups. Uh, as a 13 year old boy and I did actually eventually get the abs it made zero difference but I felt a sense of accomplishment it was it was great anyway cut, uh, cut long story short continued doing some bodyweight exercises with my stepdad he took me bouldering um, found some YouTube videos of other people doing calisthenics and bodyweights it kept growing kept growing the interest kept growing it was I miss now how old was I 22 years old and I went to my first Ido Portal and also Christopher Sommer's workshop um, both of them in London. Mm -hmm. I think that was 22, 22 years old, somewhere like that, something like that. Um, I wasn't a PT or anything at this point. I was still in my last year of uni, but I went to these workshops and I decided, great, I want to coach people more. Uh, well, I want to coach people. At the time, I was captain of the Octopus team, so the, the underwater hockey club that I mentioned oh, yeah. about. I was captain. I had been for three years and I had been coaching people in getting better at snorkeling and playing that sport. Uh, and getting building up their fitness so that's why i said okay. i want to coach people more um so you're already started connecting with that sort of activity of helping people exactly yes uh, but i hadn't trained anyone properly um it was just like it was these club sessions in the swimming pool and it was really enjoyable watching people go from not being able to like comfortably be in the water to being like some of the the fastest swimmers in in that sort of um sport in in that region of the country which was really fun but anyway uh went to the these workshops Ido Portal, Christopher Sommers learned loads got like huge you know when you get that first like exposure to lots of new material loaded mm. stretching handstands hollow body like possibly like, what's posterior pelvic tilt what's this about <laughs> I, I didn't know it was and my, my hips had to be in this this specific tilt. No wonder I'm in. I can't do anything. Literally, <laughs> at least as you know, sort of goes sort of going through your head at the time because that's how Christopher Sommers is explaining it. If you can't hold a dish for ninety seconds, then you know what are you do in real life. Um, <laughs> so that's that's where it started with the the bit um like really started and I was okay. I'm gonna do the F1 and H1 course, the Christopher Sommers courses. I'm gonna do some video portals drills. I'm going to start doing the perfect chin up as opposed to the calisthenics chin up yeah, stuff like this. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, yeah, that was the starting place. And then I kind of just got, got hooked from there. More seminars did more did the, my personal training course so I could coach people with, with actual insurance, um, and do it legally, I guess, uh, started working in a gym in London when I, when I left uni, and nobody wanted to do any of the movement stuff, you know, they just wanted to lose fat or gain muscle. Mm. 
was like, okay, cool. So I guess I have to look into that as well. So I started reading Charles Poliquin material and then combining some of the Charles Poliquin stuff with some of the bodyweight stuff for those that who wanted some of the bodyweight things, which was quite nice. Uh, and then, yeah, it just kept kind of going from there. Uh, whatever money I made, I would just spend on more learning, like more workshops, more intensives, uh, some of my own coaching, coaching with um, uh, people to teach me so that I could get better. And that's when you saw my pancake. That pancake was in like the first couple of weeks of me starting my, um, I guess, flexibility journey. But then it didn't last very long. I realized I didn't really enjoy the flexibility that much at all. So I stopped <laughs> and I came back oh, really? to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah came back to it years later i just wanted to train on the rings i just wanted i wanted to be jacked have some you know have some good muscle do some muscle ups and uh yeah do some dips and chin-ups <laughs> yeah and so you mentioned like you were at uni but then you kind of took a different route and then just jumped into to this whole personal training yeah, yeah was was there just something that just really clicked with you that you were like yep this is it like this is what i want to do yeah, so uni was a little bit of a mess for me, especially at the beginning. I started doing economics and maths, uh, really hated it, decided I did no longer want to do economics and maths mm. within the first year. So I dropped out of that subject and I almost, I actually almost dropped out of uni. Um, but my dad convinced me to stay and just keep, he's like, doesn't matter, just pick something, you know, just do a module, I'll do a um, degree. So, okay, cool, I'll stay. So I switched over to environmental science, really enjoyed environmental science, made some really nice friends. It was a really good um, course. Uh, it was really enjoyable. We got outdoors a lot. Um, we just learned a bit more about, I guess, the environment and how the world works, etc. cetera. Uh, but it wasn't what I wanted to do long-term. I f if I thought it was at first, but I, I wasn't connected connecting to it enough however when i started teaching people in octopus the underwater hockey club um i realized ah this i really enjoy this i really enjoy watching people physically develop under my tuition i guess it's because it's it was an area that mm. i probably had a personal attachment to when i from when i was younger and i started training and saw some growth mm -hmm. and then maybe helping other people grow just made me feel good uh so I was like, yeah, I want to keep feeling good and I want to keep helping other people feel good. Maybe I'll just get into something physical like this in terms of physical training. Um, and then I left uni, started the personal training course because I realized there wasn't really a big market for training people in underwater hockey. <laughs> so I was like, well, <laughs> let me just do a PT course and see where that goes. Uh, did the PT course, but this was after doing the gymnastic bodies and Ido Portal seminars or workshops. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up just combining them being like, okay, I'm going to train people, but I'm going to train people hopefully eventually in this movement E type stuff. Um, but it started off as just doing normal physical training, just getting people stronger and helping them do some body fat, which there's nothing wrong with. Uh, I actually, I really enjoyed that. That was a, a huge buzz for me, especially when I started. And how did you go about, yeah, your continual learning journey? Like you just mentioned that all the money that you earned, you know, you, you plugged it into learning um, more and more. And I think you shared some pieces that, you know, you kind of take this approach not only with your physical training, but I, I noticed like, you know, with your with your health as well. Like uh, I think you've got some like health or like diet um, uh, coaching and then also for your business as well. So is this just like, yeah, 
maybe take us through like do you have sort of a general approach with how you like to learn things it seems like you just really dive into things um and really invest in yourself as well so i'd love to hear your your thoughts on it yeah um i really like having a mentor in whatever it is that i want to get better at and i don't know what i like it's probably stemmed from some sort of like childhood issues of like you know never being good <laughs> enough and like uh it probably has like that's not i won't be around the bush like you know my dad was always like no you need to be better at this you need to be better at this mm -hmm. and i had one to be honest if you look at the majority of the movement crowd it's it's usually <laughs> just a lot of coaches with daddy issues of some sort but um i won't get into that too much <laughs> so it was it was probably just this like internal thing of wanting to be better and then when i when i start coaching and i'm like okay i'm not good enough i can't get result why am i not getting good results for my clients i need to I, oh i want to do better so because i wanted to help people like there's also this like internal want and desire to like i want to help you i can emphasize with your pain you're struggling to lose body fat you're struggling to gain muscle or you're just struggling with not being strong enough to do chin-ups or whatever mm. it was how do we get you to do more chin-ups so i start researching okay charles polygrin he's got like this 12 week chin up programs, 12 weeks to 12 chin ups or whatever. And Ido Portal had all these chin up theories, and, and Christopher Summers had all his. Uh, so then I'm like, we have, I need a, I'd like to have in someone personal to work with. Like, I like, mm -hmm. I, yeah, sure. I liked reading, I like doing some courses and online bits here and there, but I liked working with people in person. I just, I absorbed a lot better, I realized. And I just mm. enjoyed it as well. I enjoyed the travel to the locations. Um, so I went to, I, I spent, I remember the first like biggest chunk of money that I spent was on Ido Portal's, uh, what was it? The Thailand movement camp. That was it. Movement camp 2015. I think it was like over two grand and it was most of my earnings from being a PT at the time. So I go over to Thailand, book the flights, go to this movement camp. And while I'm there, I spend an extra week. I think I spent like an extra three or four days on either side of the movement camp. I spent two weeks and we had the one week movement camp in the middle. I met, I meet a guy named Tristan Kobayashi. And I'd, I'd already been to actually one of Tristan's workshops by this point. Um, but he was also in Thailand at the time. So I met up with him and decided I really liked how he worked. Mm -hmm. And he, gave me some really good um, tips while I was there. And he, I was like, okay, I'm going to sign up with this guy for, online, for his online coaching. Um, so Tristan started coaching me and I just really liked having that personal interaction with someone. Um, and it just kept going from there. He, I think we did like a couple of years worth of coaching kind of on and off. And then in 2018, so it was like three years later, I start coaching with Emmett Louie. And he's still coaching me at the moment. Mm. Uh, this has been for like over four years now. So I've always had like since 2015, I've always had like somebody responsible for my physical development and someone that I can ask questions for in regards to coaching. Hey, I have a client who's struggling with this. Can you also give me some advice? And they give me some advice. Uh, and then I realized, well, coaching's great. I'm getting better at coaching, but my business still isn't great. Like I'm, I'm not coaching a lot of people. I'm, I'm, I can, I know I can help people, but I'm not helping enough people. So mm. what do I do? I look at business mentoring or business coaching. I ask my current coach, Emmett, 
he gives me lots of business advice even to the day to this day he's, he's helped me loads like a lot of my online coaching um success has like been down to him uh and i, I take up other business courses um some that i'm not too proud of <laughs> because it's <laughs> with guys guys that who are like later on you realize they're just sleazeballs and manipulators and they just kind of just want as much money for as little service as possible but then i did some who were very good like uh one guy named jonathan goodman i did his course and i got a lot of value for the money that i spent on his course um and then in the last couple of years i realized oh, i have some health not issues but i have some things which aren't really as optimized as i'd like them to be i'm, I'm getting like these weird energy crushes or i'm getting this like weird dry skin and I have this weird issue with my um, stomach and some brain fog. So I reach out to the best nutritional uh, expert that I could find. He was a friend of a friend named Ryan Carter. And he's the last year he's helped me loads. Um, so I switch up my diet. I switch up some daily habits and practices and I take a nice holistic approach. But yeah, I've, I've always like had an, an interest in, health uh, i guess since uh, the starting the movement stuff and i always had an interest in some physical development so i would just keep reinvesting my my money into those things because they were the things that i suppose made me happy but also saw value from um whereas i i was never I, like well, i think everyone has like a small materialistic kind of desire as well like mm -hmm. you, you give someone a, a a nice materialistic present even if they're like the most like hippie-ish basic person ever they're still going to appreciate it and they're still going to like it right that we have we're humans we like things we like possessing stuff um but i've never had like a huge craving for it to the point where i would spend money on things that i didn't need um i would I would usually spend it on things that I knew would keep developing me further because I wanted to get better at doing these things. Well, I think it's paid, yeah, huge dividends uh, from you and uh, appreciate you sharing all that because sometimes, yeah, like it's a, it is a bit of a mindset switch to be investing in monetary funds as well, where, as you mentioned, sometimes it doesn't go so well, say with those business coaches where, you know, yep. you pay a lot of money and maybe you don't get, a lot back as well, but it's a bit of trial and error sometimes, especially with all these things. And you kind of have to take a bit of a risk sometimes with just going, okay, like just going to try it and see, see how it goes. Um, that's uh, at least for me as well. I think that was a big turning point when I shifted from more purely self-directed learning to going, okay, like, yeah, I actually think I need mentors as well in my life in specific areas and yeah it's been nothing short of wonderful and, and transformational i think once you make that switch instead of trying to um figure it all out by yourself because uh, in some way it also just there's a humbleness to it and it just opens you up to just going okay like i'm just going to hear as many or like other people's pers perspectives invite that in as well welcome that and actually give my trust to that to practice it and to give it a go as well, which um, I think is a huge thing um, uh, versus like when I think sometimes you normally have the bias to think that you're always right or when you find something that, you know, that's because you found it, you're like, oh, okay, like I'm on to something, but it could also lead you to 
certain other directions as well, which yeah can be good or can can be can be bad as well. But I I just found a sort of mix of having that mentor to always consult and to put my trust in, but then also still with some self-directed self-exploration is just the best mix. Yeah, hundred percent. I agree. You got you need to add the element of self-exploration and and just applying what it is you're learning and trying to apply it in i guess slightly different ways so it suits you there's never a, a one one glove fits all and that's why i prefer the mentorship approach as opposed to the course mm-hmm. approach as well i think courses are great for like giving structure and giving like organized formats of information and i'm a i'm a little bit ocd uh i like that type of stuff you know i like to see things in mm-hmm. front of me but it's not it's not the real world. It's not, it's not chaotic enough. Like the, the real world is chaotic uh, and life is chaotic. You need to, you need to be able to apply those things into the mess. And who does that better than a mentor who can like see you, see where you're at and be like, okay, you, you probably need this right now. Like, yeah, okay. This might be more efficient on paper, but it, is it realistic for you? No, you need this, do this now and then come back to that later. Um, so you do that, you play with it, and then you add your own little swing and your own little element to it. Do, like you said, the self exploration, and you're like, huh, yeah, this is working for me. I like this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going. So maybe take us a bit through your journey now to actually being a mentor or an online coach yourself, because as you mentioned, you're training people in person for a long period, and you know you had your own space, and then you've sort of um, switched up from all of that and I believe what the majority if not all of your work now is is done online so yeah what was the uh, sort of motivations to going through that switch and you know how did how did you actually make that transition so initially so I I, I loved learning I loved uh, going to do workshops and seminars like I mentioned but while I was so I was doing that while I was a personal trainer in in London and I was I was working I don't know 20 to 30 hours a week in terms of it doesn't sound like a lot but 20 to 30 one-to-one sessions a week you got all the other time around it etc which builds it up um every time I would travel to go and learn from people I would come back and I would I would have lost a few clients I would have lost business and I'm not getting paid while I'm traveling mm. I was like this doesn't work out too well like yeah it's great I'm I was fortunate. I was living with my, my mom. Um, I didn't have to pay much rent. I didn't have to pay much of anything. So I could travel and come back. And if I didn't have much income, if I didn't have many clients, it didn't really matter. I was still kind of being fed at home and, you know, I had, I had that support blanket, but I still, I'm, I had the desire to be independent and want to make my own money and afford my own things. So I realized, uh, I realized at the time, my coach, Tristan, he was an online coach. I was like, this guy's doing quite well for himself. Like, you know, he's, he went to Thailand for like four weeks and then he went to um, somewhere else for so many weeks. And he, then he went here to learn with this guy. And then he went there to learn with that guy and he was still getting paid and he was still learning and he was still training. And he was still living. So yeah, I want to do that. That's not, that sounds good. Let me, let me look into this online coaching stuff. So I think it was 2016 or 2017 when mm-hmm. I found Jonathan Goodman's course, uh, the online training, uh, the online trainer, academy i can't remember the exact name um and i did his course and and it taught you the basics and fundamentals of online coaching he's like all right what you need is some systems and you need to understand 
uh, how to kind of work towards the numbers that you want to work towards. So it's like set yourself a freedom target first. It basically, it's like how much money do you need to earn to cover your bare minimals to survive, right? And now, how many clients do you need to to achieve that much money if you're charging this much? Per, per client i like this stuff it was very systematic it was very it was the first time like i was being exposed to like some good understanding and systematic numbers of how to apply it to business because you don't really think of things that way sometimes when you first go in especially when you're not struggling when i say not struggling i mean if you're not pressured if you don't have rent if you don't have expenses to pay you're kind of just going in getting as many clients as you can doing whatever you can and you know just making stuff work um, but not with structure. So I, I started looking at it differently. Uh, I tried some of his systems and his methods and it worked quite well. The first one was basically just open up a free uh, some free slots for online coaching. It's like, just advertise, you've got five spaces. Mm -hmm. You're going to test out your new coaching methods you've, you've been working on for so long. Mm -hmm. Get people on, on, the, on the system or on the coaching. And then you can develop everything else after. It's like, once you have a client, you have to put things into place. And that was, it was very true. Mm -hmm. It was like, I think I had five, 10, 15 people sign up for this free coaching thing. I was like, shit, now I actually need to have a system to take them through. Okay, how do I do this? Right, we go on a, a call. Let's do a call first where I talk to them and we have a consultation, just like I would in the gym with my one-to-ones in the gym. Okay, what else do I need to do? Oh, I need to see how they move. Because in the gym in one-to-ones in real life, I would, I say in real life, not on the computer, I would assess how people would move before mm -hmm. I gave them a, before I coached them. Um, so, okay, so I need to do that online. So I need to write them a little movement assessment um, so they can send me videos. Oh crap, they need to send me videos. Where are they going to send them? I used Facebook groups or, you know, things like that. So then I, I was forced, like I had to play my cards. I had to develop some cards to play. Mm -hmm. Otherwise I wouldn't be able to coach anyone. But, but if I just kept thinking about all the things I had to do before actually coaching anyone, I wouldn't have got anywhere either. So it's like, if I had, so Jonathan Goodman had this, this good strategy where it's like, all right, no, you just have someone, even if you have one person who you need to coach, you will automatically end up developing a system, which you can then coach 20, 30 people from. Yep. So that's, that's what we did. Well, that's what I did. I think so that was 2016 or 17, uh, um, get offered them free online coaching, and then when it came to the end of their time period, which was either 30 days or 45 days, I can't remember. I was like, cool, you've done really well. This is where we've made progress. Would you like to continue coaching? It's going to be this fee. And I was, what did I charge him? I was like, oh yeah, you get a life, you get a lifetime discount because you were my first ever client. Um, nice. And that's what I did for these five people. Um, and I think I charged them like 75 or 80 pounds a month which is like that cheap, um, especially now, especially for like full online coaching. This is like strength, handstands, flexibility, mm -hmm. et cetera. Uh, and yeah, and that's where I started. And then, I don't know, I I didn't keep a lot of them clients. You never do keep a lot of your first clients because you. it's just how it is. Um, you're still learning. You're still adapting. Uh, you're probably not providing the best service you can. And they kind of notice that. They're like, oh, this guy's kind of new. He's new to what he's doing, but mm -hmm. yeah, he wants to help me. So I'm, I'm here for now. But eventually they find, you know, better options for themselves. Um, 
and then I can't remember which year it was. I think it must have been 2018 when I started with Emmett. So this was like two years later. I probably had two clients at this point. Um, I, I saw Emmett's systems and I was like, ah, I really like how he coaches people. I'm going to start adapting some of my bits to look a bit like Emmett. So I stopped using Facebook and I moved people over to a different platform. I stopped um, charging for I can't remember. I think program. I think it was charged for programs as opposed to monthly. I can't remember. But then I moved everyone onto like monthly payments instead of like program payments. And I just started tweaking things a little bit more and just, uh, just slowly, gradually making things a bit more efficient and mm. things which made it easier for me, but also gave them a better service, if that makes sense. Uh, and yeah, and that's how the transition kind of changed. Um, well, how it started, sorry. It started because I didn't actually go fully online until 2020. Um, but I had this a few online clients in the background while I was still PTing, while I was still teaching classes in London. And then eventually when I opened my own gym, I still had a few online clients in the background. But when I did open my own gym, the, my, the number of online clients increased. And I think that's just generally due to people seeing me as like being a bit more authoritative. They're like, oh, this guy has a gym. Surely mm -hmm. he's good and I, I was posting on instagram daily like uh, loads uh so they would see me and they'd see i had a gym and they'd see i'd be training people so like they reach out hey i want to coach with you i want to train with you and it kind of went up from there and i put my prices up because 75 pounds for a month or 80 pounds of whatever it was for a month was it was way too cheap and <laughs> also it's, it's one of those things that like, if you feel like undervalued if you're not going to do the work do you know what i mean like you don't if somebody's yeah. paying you very little for a service that you're putting a lot of time into uh you know because I, I i would i could charge like 70 pounds for an hour of a one-to-one -one session mm -hmm. in london at this point so then like 70 pounds for a whole month's worth of work for an online client was just it didn't add up it didn't make sense so you, know, you put the price up because you need to be you need to feel like you want to actually work there is always a, a monetary kind mm -hmm. of uh incentive um when you're doing monetary based services if that makes sense so if, if you're gonna charge you have to charge something that you're incentivized to work for yeah for sure and it seems like yeah you've actually been in this game for for a while and you know it's taken you um some years to set up as well so i mean if you could go back in time to the 2016 or the 2018 early and you know tell yourself uh, a piece of advice in in this space like what would you say stop stop caring about like uh, what other coaches think uh, and just create content for your potential clients like don't don't try to impress people it's a it's a waste of time and it's noticeable like it, like people you, people notice when you're insecure and trying to impress other people but um and, and it, so it's, i mean it, yeah like just telling someone to stop doing that is hard because it doesn't actually change their insecurities right mm. uh they'll still be insecure but they'll, be, they'll struggle doing what the other thing that you're telling them to do but if you can just yeah if i could go back to that time i'd say yeah just stop stop caring about what other people think and just do you know put out the content that people need yeah, it's sort of yeah. like trusting in yourself and being more authentic with what you want to share, right? And uh, yeah, in in essence, people can 
really just intuitively sense that even if it is some pre-recorded video that they're watching. Exactly. Yeah. Like come in when we've been nurtured through the movement culture, um, we've been nurtured through specifically a guy, I mean, like Ido Portal, who would put out mysterious posts and messages constantly. Mm. Um, but he, like, we have to remember, Ido was like top of the game within this industry that he created, essentially. Mm. Uh, I mean, he's not the first person to do movement, but he ultimately owned movement culture, if, if that makes sense. He had the Facebook group. It was called Movement Culture. Thousands of people in there. Mm. But what that then did was it, he, he would never, unless you understood business, um, which it didn't until later, you couldn't really see what Ido was doing. All you would see is a guy who was very good at doing what he did and, and posting about it and posting mysterious things and basically saying, hey, this is the better way to do stuff. So what do coaches do off the back of that? They try and act like Ido, right? And they're like, they try and impress other coaches by like pretending they know more than everyone else. Yeah. And and they they're mysterious with their words and their posts and this they're cryptic and they want they want other coaches to believe that they are really good, but it makes no sense because the other coaches aren't the ones paying for their fucking bills. You know, mm. Other coaches don't pay for your rent. They're not paying for your children's food on the table. Not that I have any kids, but you know a lot of these coaches did. So these other coaches aren't the ones who are, who are paying for anything to do with your life. Why do you? Why do you want to make out as if you know more than them? And it's like, it, it would come down to is it like a competition thing where you want other people to pick you as their coach um, and you want to prove to them that you know better than other people. Or is it that you are just trying to impress other coaches and you kind of want their approval? Like I, like I was saying before, in terms of like the whole daddy issue thing, a lot of um, people that did follow Ido followed him and, and went to his internships there were people that would go to like they would be paying thousands and thousands of pounds to like go to his internships year after year nothing wrong with it again but they would be like seeking his approval a lot of them a lot of people wouldn't as well they just wanted the knowledge which was great but you'd see it people seeking his approval and wanting his uh recognition and it's yeah it's not really what creates business it's not good for a somebody who wants to actually coach to be looking for approval and recognition by other coaches you're not there to, for them you're there for the people you're trying to help mm. and you kind of just need to focus on that uh and i think like over the years people that i used to not appreciate in like the teaching industry i've started to appreciate more because actually they never cared what what you thought back then and what mm. you think now they like some of the the best coaches in the game um they don't care if other coaches are like watching their stuff or or judging their stuff they just care about how many people they can reach out mm. to and help most of the time um and at the end of the day that's what it comes down to it's like how many people can you help and how many people can you help effectively right because that that's essentially why we started why well what whatever it is that we're doing well why do we start training people it's because we want to change people's lives why do you start um mentoring people if you are mentoring again you want to change their lives you want to help them be better at whatever it is that they want to be better at 
Yeah. Those are such beautiful words, Erdi. And I think, you know, a good reminder for all of us with, um, yeah, uh, I guess just sharing what you can to, I guess, the people that you, you do want to help and, and to remember that as well. And that uh, in the end, yeah, when you take on the role of the coach, I mean, it's specific to the person that you want to help, right? Like if you yeah. wanted to help other coaches, yeah, yeah, sure. Take that approach or whatever approach to to attract coaches. But then if your yes. person is their everyday uh, man or woman or a person and or the person just getting into body weight training, then you have to tailor the content and the messages that you share out to to help them truly, right? So... Exactly. I think that's a really good reminder and it's sometimes difficult, right? Cause it's kind of balancing the role of you as the obsessed practitioner, which a lot of us come from and you just want to share, you know, the latest coolest shit that you're working yep. on, that you're just trying to understand yourself versus all your clients who are probably on a completely different level to you. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That there is definitely that conflict, and you see it. You see it all the time. Uh, if you look back at your own posts, or even if you look at your your posts now, you know I still do it. If I if I if I reach a new PB in something mm. complex or whatever, I'll still post about it. It still excites me, and uh, I want. And sometimes that excitement will carry over to other people, even if they don't have a clue what it is that you're doing. Um, but then there needs to be. If 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 your goal is to own a business and to like use that business to survive and support your environment and your family, you need to find the healthy ratio of, am I posting stuff that's helping people that's going to attract them to my business so that I can do the things I need to do and provide for my family and my environment? Or am I just posting things that are there to satisfy, dare I say it, my ego, you know, mm -hmm. my my insecurities and whatever, my, my demons, you know, <laughs> whatever, however you want to talk about it. Um, yeah. You need to find the balance uh, if there is a balance. Yeah. So switching over to this topic that I wanted to ask you about, which you share um, a bit on, which is about uh, handstand pressing strength uh, and the development of the press to handstand. Uh, because I know you, coach and guide people in a lot of areas like you mentioned but um i think the press to handstand is such a wonderful and beautiful example of so many different qualities and traits within the body because you know you not only have to be strong but there's an element of mobility there's an element of the skill component of the coordination putting that all together to finally lift your just lift your legs off the, the floor it sounds yeah. so simple when i just say that you you just lift your legs <laughs> off the floor that's it yeah. <laughs> but we all know that it isn't that simple so yeah i just wanted to do a bit of a deep dive into how you approach that just as a general approach with with students so maybe where we might start it is you know if someone is training their handstand what's the point where you might normally or what what yeah what's the what do you look for where you might start introducing some tools to develop the press to handstand what sort of markers nice very very quick story regarding the press before i answer that question awesome 2000 2013 
Edoportal workshop, the one I mentioned before, my first ever Edoportal experience. Halfway into the workshop, Edo puts his hands on the floor and he lifts his feet off the floor a couple of inches, like the, the beginning of a press walk, right? My mm. first ever exposure to the press the handstand. And he's like, can you do this? Can, do you have the strength to put your hands on the floor? Or, I don't know if that, there is words, but he's like, do you have the ability to put your hands on the floor and lift your feet off the floor while the hands are there? And everyone put their hands down. And there's like a few people in the room that couldn't and majority of the room that couldn't, myself included. And he's like, do you know why? Or do you know how we developed this? And then, and I was like, no, I don't. I, I really want to know. <laughs> and then he got sidetracked. Like someone asked like a question or they interrupted with something. And then he was like, okay, I'll explain soon. And he never got back to the explanation. Oh, in no. that seminar. I was like, no, I want to know. And I didn't have the balls to ask him by like the end of the, the workshop. I was like, hey, you know that thing you showed us where you like magically lifted your feet off the floor? How did you do that? And, uh, you know, I was, I was still like, I was, yeah, I was very, I was like one of the youngest guys there, very insecure, very, I didn't, I didn't want to ask questions. I was, I didn't want to be seen. Um, uh, and like, and that's bothered me uh, up until this day, it still bothers me because I want to know Edo's rationale or like Edo's mm. explanation because every coach explains it differently. Every trainer explains it differently, but I want to know how Edo taught it, if he even taught it. Uh, but anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so That's a funny story yeah it really bothered me uh what do i look out for um i first can this person handstand to be honest the handstand isn't like super important to start training the press but i let me let me just see where they're at like are they do they have any handstand vocabulary because that will kind of give me a small indication of what have they trained up until this point and where have they got their information from? Has it been YouTube videos? Because you can you can tell sometimes when you look at someone's handstand, like where mm. they've learned handstand from. Have they learned handstand from a yoga crowd? They kind of just like taught themselves through YouTube. Have they mixed with the calisthenics groups? Have they been in any like circus or actual like hand balance environments? Um, so that's the first thing I look at. I want to know a bit more about their background. And then... If they can handstand, I want to see their tuck. Okay, if you can handstand and you cannot do a tuck handstand, we have a lot of work to do, a lot. Like, even if, I don't care about keeping your shoulders open 180 degrees. Mm -hmm. Like, can you bring can you bring your knees into a bit of flexion and your hips into a bit of flexion at the same time? And to what degree can you do that regardless of the shoulders? Um, so, yeah, that's that's one of the, the big things and why why do you particularly single out that movement because that movement is okay so you know in the gym you have the dumbbell pyramids uh, sorry yeah. uh, like the weight because you have like a pyramid in terms of one to ten like one kilo two kilos three kilos four uh, like, to ten kilos like the stacker yeah. yeah yeah the stacker yeah um that movement is the one kilo dumbbell Right. And the press is the 10 kilo dumbbell. So the degree of the tuck, the, 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 the better the tuck, the closer you are to that 10. Okay. This is, this is the one of the problems with the press, the handstand is there's no point. There's no way to measure when you're not 
able to, so the point when you can't lift your feet off the floor, we've all been there. You put your hands on the floor and you try to do that thing that Ido showed me in the workshop, lean over your wrist and try and lift the feet off the floor and you can't, but you can't gauge how close you are to actually being able to, hmm. because there's, there's no, there's no in between, right? It's either your feet are on the floor or they're off the floor. Yeah. There's nothing in between. So how do you know how close you are? Whereas let's say you, you, you're hitting a, a, a target with your deadlift. You want a two times body weight deadlift. Okay, I weigh 50 kilos. I want to deadlift 100 kilos. I can deadlift 50 at the moment. Every week you're getting your numbers higher and higher. You know how close you're getting to that 100 kilos. You've got no idea how close you're getting to lifting your feet off the floor when you're going to press the hands there. It just feels impossible for so long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is why a lot of people mess up with it because they've got no gauge. That There's no measurements. So, okay, if I, if I don't have a gauge, if I don't have a, a measurable ladder, then how do I know if I'm even making progress mm. um, and how far I am? So the tuck will tell me how far up this pyramid or the stacker, the dumbbell stacker, these people are between one and 10. Yeah. Um, if the tuck is very deep while having the shoulders in either 180 degrees or a little bit less, then they're closer to, to number 10. Number 10 being the, the full press the handstand. Mm. If, if they cannot tug, they are closer to one, if, if they're even at one. Yeah. So it's like, okay, you're not even on the ladder yet, bro. Let's get you on the ladder and then we can work towards your press. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so once we get people to start working their tugs, we can, we can set some foundations into place. If that makes and, sense. And how do you like to introduce the tuck as well? Um, you know, what sort of, I know there's a, there's a lot, a lot of ways, but maybe, you know, just name a, a couple of ways where you, you find to be uh, ones that, that you prefer. And I, I'd love to hear also some, like you mentioned, like the shoulder angle for the tuck yeah. is particularly quite important as well. And, you know, there's actually a few different ways of doing a tuck and maybe there's, you know, uh, a particular angle which is more going to transfer to the press to handstand as well. So love to just hear you riff on that. Yeah. So um, first, why the tuck? I think you asked that in the previous question. I didn't really get into it properly. It's because mm-hmm. as soon as you pull the knees down a little bit and you, you bend the knees and bend the hips and pull the knees down towards your chest, um, we're putting a bit more weight into underbalance. So if we've got the handstand, we've got two segments of balance, overbalance and underbalance, over being all of the weight that's in front of your fingertips, under being all of the weight that's behind your palms. If we start a press for handstand, all of the weight is behind the palms. So we're in heavy underbalance. That's why I like to use the tuck um, as the, the gauging tool because it starts bringing you from, let's say neutral, let's say your straight line is neutral. As soon as you start bending the knees, it starts bringing some weight into underbalance. My first introduction to this, by the way, was Mikhail Christiansen. Um, really, really, really good handstand coach, really theoretical and analytical, um, if you can understand him. He's, he's fantastic. I love him. So the way I would start introducing people to this underbalance is on the wall. So it's like, okay, we can do a chest wall handstand on the wall. Very nice. Can we do a chest to wall tuck? It doesn't have to be a big tuck. It can be small. It just, any degree of knee flexion plus hip flexion equals load increased in underbalance, right? Mm-hmm. Assuming, assuming nothing else is really changing. So assuming you're not like 
shooting your hips really far over and like bending into your upper back because you can bring those knees and hip uh, hips down yeah you can you can bring the knees down and flex at the hips but while also arching into your lower back and your upper back and like sending the hips over this is like the yogi yeah. type tuck handstand it's so, super flexible yeah super flexible really beautiful tucks really nice but what you haven't actually increased the load in underbalance you've you've kept it in neutral your center of mass is still neutral above mm. the hands it hasn't come anywhere closer to the heel of your hand um so it's like can how much weight can we bring closer to the heel of your hand while you being able to support it so we do that on the wall now you can also do this a lot of coaches do it with other drills like the l handstand so one leg up and one leg just starts coming down. Um, this is uh, this is an hour handstand. Again, as long as the top leg isn't going over the hands mm. to com to combat the weight of the leg that's coming down, then it will. As long as that's not happening, it will be extra load and underbalance. So this some people find this easier. Um, to be honest, there's no right or wrong. I, I, it's not one that I use. I, I like the tuck maybe because I've trained with Mikhail and, and Harry Williams. I did one of Harry Williams workshops as well. Fantastic hands and coach. Um, and he, uh, he went over the tuck in a lot of detail as well. So maybe I'm a bit more biased towards the tuck because I trained with these guys and Emmett Lewis. I mean, he, he coached my handstands mm -hmm. and he, he took me through the, he never used, we never used our oh, handstand with Emmett Lewis, but it is another option. You can go down that way. So yeah, the wall, chest wall tucks, uh, chest wall tuck slides, um, even like knee supported tucks. So like if you have your knees on a height, the same way you would have your feet on a height in an L handstand, you can do the same in a tuck and you can hold tucks there. Uh, I don't use that one very often, um, but yeah, chest wall tuck is my go-to. Okay. And so say, you know, you're starting to, oh, you're kind of on this tuck journey and maybe you've, you've you've got a tuck or it's like sort of a, a decent mm. tuck as well um is that enough to sort of get you there or what do you what else do you look to incorporate and help with this journey to develop the press nice so you have a tuck handstand lovely take a picture of it right somewhat a tuck handstand that you can hold for about five to ten seconds take a picture of it and then draw a line from your hip socket so where the like the, the top of your thigh is attached and just draw it down straight to the knee and then keep going straight so basically imagine that you've now extended your legs in that tuck handstand mm -hmm. um where are your feet this will give you a nice gauge of where you're at so like the lower the feet to the ground uh the closer you are to your press ultimately mm. The higher the feet off the ground, if you draw that line, uh, then the further away you are from the press, if that makes sense. Because um, the tuck is just the bent knee. It's, it's a bent knee press, basically. It's all part of the bent, uh, the part of the press. Um, that's how I would kind of gauge it. You got to draw the line from the hip bone through the knee, for wherever that thigh is kind of direct looking at, and that will give you a nice idea. Um, so obviously your your shoulder angle. That you kind of mentioned before will have a bit to play here as well if your shoulder angle is really open mm -hmm. then you're going to notice that when you draw that line like like if you're if you're more open than it should be or like you're arching through the back etc when you draw that line your feet aren't going to be anywhere near the floor or anywhere near your hands mm -hmm. they're going to be 
quite high off the hands. But if your shoulder line, if you've got like a nice vertical handstand, like through the shoulder line, um, maybe the hips go over a little bit. Then when you draw the line, if you've got a deep tuck, your feet should be somewhere near the hands. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really looking for almost that point where the, yeah, the knees are lower than the hips. So that, that line, when you, when you draw yes. that is, is pointing down to the ground. Exactly then that would be like the half position for if you were to extend your legs, you'd be the starting press position. Exactly. Yeah. So if the knees were like touching the chest and you extend, you draw that line, mm -hmm. your feet would be pretty much on the floor close to your hands or close to it. If you, if you can do that, you're in good hands. Like you're very close to a press. Normally that's what I found. Mm -hmm. So is that your preferred way of um, going about it? Because I remember in my press journey, um, I didn't know anything about any of these tucks and stuff like yeah. that. In fact, when I returned back to my tuck, my tuck was nowhere near where, you know, I could extend that line to, to the ground, but I did, I did get it, um, you know, and I worked on other pushing strengths and like planche strength nice. and, and things like that. So yeah, so, I guess, could you speak a little bit to the other components other than the tuck where, you know, you, you, you could get it as well? Yes. Okay. So the tuck is my preferred route because it plays over and carries over into more than just the press, but like other handstand, like nice shapes and nice drills and are basically usually good scapular elevation and good um, shoulder flexion. Now, did you have the, the planche press the handstand? Basically, is that what you had? Like yeah. Like I, like I just planched my way until like my hips were able to remain stacked over my hands and then just pivot the 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 feet up from that hip point by having enough strength to hold my hips there in position. Nice. Okay. Cool. So in theory, like you would have had a tuck, it just wouldn't have looked like the tucks we were kind of talking about with mm. the shoulders a bit more open. Like if if you can do what you did there with your legs straight, then you can do it with your knees bent. Oh yeah, I know what you mean. So I'm just if punching punching yeah. forward with yeah, my, like my. Uh, it'd just be like a really high tuck planche almost yeah. position. Exactly. Exactly. You would have been, you would have still had a tuck. It would have just been with a closed shoulder angle. Hmm. Um, assuming we kind of worked you with the balance and you understood how to hold it. So, so the tuck is like one of the main three checkpoints I like to look at. The other one is, okay, let's say you're, you don't have anywhere near a, a nice, like 180 degree shoulder flexibility. Um, what does your planche look like? Do you have a very strong tuck planche? Uh, I'm assuming you did have some strong planche strength or at least strong pushing strength um, mm. in that in that range. If somebody's like quite strong in their in their tuck planche and their the planche movements, then we can kind of go about it in that way. So we can still get you your press um, just by utilizing the extra strength in the planche, like you mentioned. So by taking the shoulders far forward enough, uh, it's still nice to be able to keep the hips a little bit on the higher end than the lower, because the lower the hips are, the much heavier it's going to be. Um, and the even more planche strength you're going to need. But if we can just get your hips a little bit higher by like coming into some of the hamstring flexibility and the pancake flexibility, usually the pike and pancake, then we can get your shoulders far forward enough so that we can lift the legs and just rely on the, the brute power of your deltoids as opposed to the traps, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, that is that is another option and another nice option for people who haven't really well, who basically are. I don't want to say fortunate in that range. I think that's some, that's a that's an area that I was never very strong with. I was never very strong at like the planche range. Um, but for those that are, that's a, a good introductory point to the press the handstand, as you and, noticed. And with the um, press the handstand, is it primarily the straddle press the handstand that you get people working straight into, or is there some other type of variant that you might go for as well? You know, I've seen sometimes other people um, post or share things that you know, there's like bent arm presses to handstand, or you can even like sort of tuck your knees in to make it, you know, a little bit easier as well. Like how, how do you like to go about it? Is it strictly the, the straddle press? Yeah, it's mostly the straddle press. Like I had a, a couple of students who they could puppy press um, and they liked puppy pressing, but they couldn't press the handstand. So sometimes like once a week at the end of a session, I'd say, do your puppy presses here. Like this is this is where you play with your puppy press. Because uh, it's not, I mean, it's still a bit of load in the right areas, but it wasn't something that I would teach or like try and work people towards. But I do like to give people what they enjoy as mm. well. I think training, training is great. And depending on the person, some people might need a bit more autonomy in, in terms of what they like and what they enjoy yeah. than others. Some people are like, just tell me what I need to do. I will do it to a T. Great. Uh, some people are like, uh, yeah, I didn't really like this drill. Okay, cool. We need to give you a, a bit more of your puppy pressing because you like puppy pressing or whatever it is. The pu yeah. puppy press is just the, the replacement for here. Um, no, I, I just, I like to do the straddle pressing. Uh, I, I also like to work people towards a pike press, um, but that, that usually comes, it's just the heaviest straddle press really for most people. Like once you understand the mechanics of the straddle press, the, the pike press comes quite nicely. Um, I didn't really have any reason to teach it another way, but I didn't have any reasons not to either, other than the fact that it's nice to kind of, you'll find with a lot of coaches, they will just have specific systems that they like to use because they become efficient at using those systems um and the bent knee pressing just didn't really fit into it this way it with with what i was teaching because they would be covering that area of strength with other movements mm. so like the eccentric straddle press the handstands um, they would be developing more strength than what they could be doing in like a bent knee type press the handstand, if that makes sense. Yep. So it's not like that the bent knee press the handstand is wrong. It's just a variation that didn't fit into my curriculum for teaching mm. the handstand, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And the puppy press is the one where you kind of like come come at it at the side, right? You kind of lift yeah. one leg over. I remember seeing that and um, the people that could do it, they're like, yeah, you, you do this because it can be easier than doing the straddle press. And I remember going, yeah, sweet. All right, I'm going to try that. That that yeah. looks like it could be easier. And then you try it and you're like, no, nah, this is still impossible, just like the straddle press. It feels exactly <laughs> the same. And yeah. in fact, I didn't really get this puppy press until like even – I think it was just like six months ago or something where my press was like a lot more developed where, you know, going back for me and my body to get 
to get that movement and that position was a lot harder um, versus, yeah, the uh, the other pressing movements. So there you go. You know, I think there's 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 always like all these different nuances where depending on your flexibility, your lever proportions and everything like that, that can affect, I guess, if something comes more easily to you versus not, which is. I think what you don't appreciate when you're first just starting out in this journey as well, like you, you, you just don't, don't know, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've come to understand a lot that, you know, unfortunately if you're in the body weight game and you have like really big or long legs, um, or is it long arms in, in some movements as well, things can just be like super difficult. Yeah. They, yeah, you, you don't get exposed to the individual individuality of things because from my opinion and perspective, a lot of coaches will coach methods that they that worked for them as their individual. Mm -hmm. Um this is why when you go on YouTube, you look at press the handstand drills, you'll see like so many different people given like so many different options and drills, right? But they don't really explain why some will be better than others for different people because they haven't coached enough people of different variabilities or they haven't been open-minded enough to try different methods with people that their methods didn't work for, mm. right? It's, it's, it's always, I say always, for 99% of the fitness industry is a statistics game. It's like, does your method work for this group of a hundred people? Cool, it works for 5% of them. The other 95% it didn't work for, they didn't make it to your reviews and transformations. They're now working with other people and they found another coach that has a, a method that works for them with the 5% rule or whatever it is. Um, that's essentially what happens in a lot of the the fitness industry uh, and then especially when it comes to the more complex movement teaching like this you don't find a lot of coaches who are able to differentiate between different limb like uh, limb proportions or people's strengths and weaknesses and then give them the system that's relevant for them because ultimately they would have had to now learn how to press the handstand five or six different uh, in five or six different ways you know or however many ways there are there are to do it um which they didn't. They just learned it in one, and it was very specific to them. Um, mm. They ha they had the nice long legs. They had the nice pike flexibility. Their hips were already stacked over their shoulders before they even had to work for anything. Uh, all they needed to do was get like to level three on that dumbbell rack that we spoke about in terms of shoulder strength, and that was enough to get the feet off the floor. Mm. Whereas other people would still need to get to level ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think it's only just time and experience and just realizing that when your um when your route is not working and knowing how to adapt and to to sort of uh almost put aside your own experience to how you learn things yes. to go okay like maybe this person is completely different and what they're saying is actually true with that it is not quite clicking for them and you have to change change the methods and i yeah. think that's always really humbling when you're looking to guide someone when you, when you can, when you can do that. Um, but other than yeah. the, uh, the, the tuck, um, with the movement itself, at what point do you start looking at 
um, doing sort of um, like straddle press eccentrics or uh, other things like that to actually understand the pathway of the press. Um, okay, I will usually just test the straddle press eccentric as a gauge first and see how controlled or not someone can kind of do it. And then I'll, I'll usually test them on it for a phase. And I will see how much progress they've made on that straddle press eccentric for a phase um, or, or less than sometimes. If they haven't really made any and it's still dropping just as fast, it's like, okay, they they, they shouldn't be doing straddle press eccentrics. Like mm -hmm. the, they need to probably do some back to wall stuff um, and some chest to wall straddle press stuff, but normally back to wall stuff. They need to understand the hip roll. They need to understand the articulation of the spine and they just need to understand how to keep a bit more weight in their shoulders and their wrists. And then sometimes you have people doing straddle press eccentrics and you look at the first, the rep in the first week and then the rep in the last week. And you're like, okay, we're making some gains. We can, we can keep these in. We will keep these here and we're just, we're going to keep them in probably until you learn your press eventually. And we'll just play with the variables. I'm even going to give you more reps. Or I'm going to give you less rest or more sets, etc. cetera. Uh, as some of the work for your for your press the handstand. Now, I personally don't get a lot out of eccentric work. I mean, for me, it's, or, or at least like just direct eccentric. Like I used to try it for the handstand push up, never worked for me. I tried it for the press the handstand, it never worked for me as a standalone got a drill. Whereas for some people they can just do eccentrics of a movement and it's enough for them to make, to learn the skill. All right. That was me. Yeah. That was for, you. For, nice. For, for some, like not everything, but um, yeah, particularly with some like the deeper handstand push up work and uh, like for stolter press as well, like just doing a lot of nice. eccentrics really yeah, um, worked for, for me quite well. Nice. That's awesome. So I'm very envious of that. Like it, it never, just the eccentric work never clicked for me. I always needed extra accessories or extra this or extra that. Um, so again, based on my biases, I would generally give people some other extra little drills. Now, in terms of when do I just have them on the eccentrics? Like if they can, if they have some good control in stand in like straight uh, tuck to straights, so if you're in a straight, I think you're in a straight handstand, you pull your knees down to tuck, and then you come back up to straight. Pull knees down, tuck, back up straight. Cool. This is a good good um, position now. The next one is straddle to straight or straight to straddle. So you're in a straight handstand. You open up to straddle. You bring the legs down to close to 90 degrees and then back up. Can you do that? Cool. All right. We're probably ready for, for eccentric straddle press handstands. So we can play with the eccentrics. Um, if not, then I would usually have them build in. I like, I like to build people to three to four reps on straight to straddles. So like from a straight handstand, pull your, pull your legs down to 90 degrees and back up. This is like the, the top half of the press to handstand. I like them to be able to do that. And at the same time, I will build them the lower portion of the strength with things like a chest to wall um, straddle eccentric. So this is when you're, let's say you're in a chest wall straddle position. Mm -hmm. uh, so your hands are a bit further away from the wall. You're in the straddle. Your legs are down at 90 degrees and they're on the wall. Now from here, can you pull the legs off the wall and down to float to the hands? This is what got me the press mm. for, for me specifically. Um, and it worked really well for me and it's worked really well for quite a few of my students that I've given it to. Uh, 
if they can, if they can do that and they can do straight to straddles, then they've got the press range covered. It's like from the, the bottom all the way to the top or from the top all the way to the bottom. Yep. Um, and then last, usually what, if they can do both of those things, the last piece of the puzzle is just the fully centric. Okay, can we just do the fully centrics for a couple of reps? Nice. It means we should have the press sometime soon. Yeah, nice. I'd, I've never... um. I, I never messed around with those uh, chest to wall uh, eccentrics or doing any, any sort of, um, uh, I guess, straddle work on the uh, my chest to wall as well. Yeah. I did, I've done the back to wall. Um, nice. So, yeah, um, I can see how that that makes sense and how that that can work to sort of fill in that gap for yeah. for you in in that in that range. Um, yeah, that that's cool. Um, and I really like how you explained there about just testing with that uh, straddle eccentric, and then using mm -hmm. that to inform you of what choices to <laughs> best help that person afterwards. To uh, to not just I guess be stubborn and be like, yeah, just do the the straddle eccentrics, and it'll it'll help you there. But then guide you in the best direction to go. Okay, where did the deficiencies lie? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We, we always need to know where the deficiencies are um, if we want to give someone a more of a complete program. So it's like, mm. right, where's your flexibility at? Where is your active flexibility at? How good are you at pulling your legs towards your torso? Oh, you can't pull them in at all? Okay, we need to address that. Um, how is the strength in the bottom part? How is the control in the top part? So you see people who, when they first learn to press and they might, this might happen for months. There's actually, there's quite a lot of people you'll see when mm. they try to press, they can lift their feet off the floor. They come to 90 degrees and then they just like, it's like a spring action. Their feet just fly over. They, mm. they can't catch it at the top. They're like, yeah, I can press, but I can't handstand. Cool. They're the people that need the straight to straddles. You know, that's what they need to practice. So, so you look at the, it's, it's like an, it's engineering. Basically you look at the different, like, the variables you're like okay you're weak here we need to fix that oh you're very strong here we don't even need to train that um maybe give you like two sets a week or one a few sets a week just so you can kind of keep it uh but you don't need to do lots of it uh we need to fix this 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 and then you're kind of good to go sometimes like in your case with the planche um if the strength that they're strong in like is very far ahead of everything else then it's like, okay, you know what? Maybe we can milk this. Maybe if we just like keep getting this a little bit stronger, you can just bypass all the other variables and yep. yeah, okay, it might not look like the best press in the world, but we'll get you that press. Yeah, nice. I, I like that. It's just also recognizing sometimes their their strengths if it is like you can just play into that uh, and that will get them to the goal. You know, that that's also like the quickest route, right? Rather than going, yeah. okay these deficiencies they're going to take time to and to develop and then to keep exactly to get to that level exactly but can we talk a little bit about the flexibility component um because yeah. yeah you just mentioned it just then and you know i know from your own journey your pancake was pretty pretty bad as well from where you first yeah. first started um and that's quite an important position for the straddle press um so yeah, yeah how, how do you like to approach it and assess it for people so I look at the I look at the press and we say, okay, what's needed in regards to flexibility? And also what how do we define the flexibility components? So there's quite a few bits of flexibility in there, which um depend on your definition of flexibility is depend on what you what you find. 
like technically the articulation of the spine, so like the rolling down of the spine is itself a form of flexibility that's needed. Uh, that one is hard to miss actually. Unless you've got the really strong plants press, you can't really avoid that one. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, you have things like Jefferson curls, but it like I could Jefferson curl uh, almost my body. Uh, let me not let me not boast too much. It wasn't almost my body weight; it was less. <laughs> I could Jeff I could Jefferson curl more than half of my body weight, but I couldn't do. Um, I couldn't roll down the spine in a press the handstand. So he's like, does it transfer? No. I mean, it didn't for me. So, so what was missing? The back to wall press rolls helped here. What we, what we need to realize is actually depending on the drills that we use for the press strength would can sometimes make or break how many drills we need to use for the flexibility. So remember the, the drill I just mentioned about being in the chest wall and the straddle and pulling your legs down. Yep. Um, and also in the back to wall press, if you're if you're in the back to wall and you're pulling the legs down towards your hands, what you're doing is you're actively doing the straddle compressions. Mm. So you know you, you know the the infamous seated straddle compression drill or the seated pike compression drills that everyone hates, but every coach loves to prescribe. You sit on the floor, you take your legs out wide, put your hands in between your legs, and you're like, okay, now lift your legs off the floor. Horrible. Yeah, you don't need to do them if you're doing back to wall on chest to wall straddle press handstand eccentrics because you're you're actively pulling your legs in towards your hands mm. in those drills so this is why i like to be quite specific with some of the drills that i use because it saves me time so okay i don't i don't need to give you five sets two times a week of these straddle compressions if we're doing back to wall type stuff um there's some there's a couple other drills there's like pancake block crush which i really like this one teaches you how to actively pull your torso towards your legs as well as pull the torso up uh, as well as pull the legs up towards the torso this is like so you're sitting on the floor in a straddle you have a foam roller in between the top of your thigh and the bottom of your um torso like your abs and then you crush that foam foam roller to one side um uh, by doing like a, a pancake onto that side and then you do the same on the other side this is the pancake block crush this teaches you again how to pull your legs and torso together which is very relevant for the pancake i'm um, sorry for the uh, press the handstand so i mean i don't expect people to be noodles i don't even want a full pancake position there is never there's never really a case in the pancake with, a, with most people where they're um, in the press down stand, whether in a full pancake, hands to floor pike. Yes, we want to be able to touch the floor with our hands on our palms, and we don't want there to be extra tension in the legs. We mm -hmm. want to be able to touch the floor with the hands, and for the legs to not feel like they're under a heavy stretch. Because if yep. they're in a heavy stretch, then you're going to find it hard to do what you need to do. So I like to sm uh, smash. Yeah, I like to smash people's pikes, pikes flexibility. I will, I like them to be able to have the wrists lower than their feet um, for the hands for the press um, development. For the pancake, it doesn't need to be crazy. They just need to be comfortable with having like the legs straight and in straddle. Um, so the, the knees locked, relatively locked um, in the straddle position and in the pike-ish position with the legs close-ish to the body. But we develop this through the active drills I mentioned. So the back-to-wall press rolls and the chest-to-wall press rolls, uh, press eccentrics. They both develop this fine. 
So I found that if you can just like build your pike and then build that active level of compression, um, it's usually more than enough if you have if you if you're also building the strength in the shoulders. So that's that's usually my approach. Uh, if someone's really struggling, then I'll have them start working towards narrow pancakes. So it's like, instead of, sometimes you have people that are like great in like a full flat pancake mm -hmm. and they can also touch the floor, the touch the floor with their hands. But as soon as you bring them into like a narrow pancake, they've got nothing um, or at least not much. So, but it's not, it won't take long for them to develop it because they kind of have everything they need. They just haven't figured the body hasn't figured it out yet. So what you do is you just bring the legs instead of it being in like a wide pancake position, bring them a, a bit narrower. Um, because this is realistically more transferable to the press the handstand. Like again, the actual pancake, like when, when you're in a press the handstand, when you bring your legs high enough that they become as wide as they are in your pancake, you're never actually in the pancake itself. You're mm. you're closer to like your your torso is almost 90 degrees away from the legs or the hip. Yeah, the legs. And 90 degrees? Yeah, 90 degrees. Maybe 50, 60. Yeah. Yeah, that was again really beautiful explanation of how to approach things with a lot of nuances there and you know i think especially recognizing that difference between uh, that's um that act being able to actively create force to pull yourself your your legs towards your your chest um rather than like i know for me you know i was doing a lot of like the even like the weighted pancake work as well which is like yeah different because all that weight and gravity is is helping you and get down into that position versus like you actually pulling your legs into me was yeah there's quite a big game yeah. changer in my understanding with trying to transfer a lot of what i thought was like my um my my flexibility to other sort of positions and other other movements so yeah really appreciate you you touching on it there and and it makes sense as well that you want people to at least have very good pike flexibility so that they can start in that starting position uh without i guess feeling like they're being restricted or pulled down by all their their hamstrings uh limited yes yeah exactly like you, you see people do it without pike like you You've probably seen in a few cases, maybe your one looked a bit similar when you they do their first press or they can press their hands on the floor, but their feet are further back in a slight straddle position um, than their hands and their, the hips aren't fully over the wrists, mm. but but they can plunge lean enough to kind of make it happen. Okay, they didn't need a full pike position, but if we got their pike a little bit better, which we could very easily do when they're sort of that level of flexibility, it won't take very long. It's just like a couple of nice drills that will, that will help them. Then they will just find it a lot lighter. You know, they can, they yeah. can just, they'll leave us to do more reps or they just won't use as much energy to do one rep and they can do more sets of that one rep. Um, usually with the type of people I coach, uh, I'm quite fortunate. They have a bit more time to train. So I say, okay, we're going to do all the, so we're going to smash your traps as much as we can and the, and the delts for this press the handstand, but then with the, um, the with as much um, recovery as you can handle. But then in the other bits of your training, we're going to do some pike flexibility. We can do a, a little bit of uh, maybe some pancake flexibility. And um, yeah, and, and that way we can hit all of the variables so that we just get there a little bit quicker, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, and we touched on quite a few of the major areas. Is there anything else um, 
that you'd like to sort of point to with the, you know, like a general tips or any sort of areas we haven't yet touched on, which you think are important for the press to handstand journey? Um, you want to feel like when you grab the floor, you own the earth. Like the earth is yours and it's in your hands and you are in control of the floor. Like, like that's the sensation you want when you're going for your press the handstand. Like you are so strong. You, you're basically grabbing the floor with your hands and then you're just making everything move around it. Um, so you, you want to go for that mental connection there. I find it really helps. And that really helps me as well. Like if I'm just feeling a little bit dead or whatever, or if I'm not really warmed up, sometimes I'll, I'll go for like a, a cold press. Like, no, I'm, I'm going to grab this floor. Like I've never grabbed the floor before. And, and there's just this like transfer of strength, like through the fingers up into the traps and the shoulders. And you just, you can just keep it compact and solid and everything moves around it. Germany is like strengthful triumph. Most things here is that you just get stronger and it, it doesn't matter if it's ugly, if it's not, if it's nice, it's nice. Just, you will be able to press, just, mm. just get stronger. <laughs> I, I smile because sometimes I picture in my mind as well, before I press the scene in the matrix where Morpheus talks about Neo and going, he's starting to believe. And I go, I need <laughs> I need to believe, I need to believe before I place my hands down. And that seems to really help me before, you know, <laughs> I try you to do. press. <laughs> you really do. Like, yeah, it's very, it's such a psychological game because it has so many nuances to it, like you're saying. And everyone's like mystified the press so much and given out all this random information, which is so irrelevant. And it just makes it even more mystical. She's like, mm. how does this person doing it? by doing these like yoga ball presses or Swiss ball presses or whatever they're doing. Yeah. But I, I can't, you know, so, um, so yeah, you need to believe. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> and so what I wanted to ask you at as well is, you know, just the handle learning to human, you know, where, where did that come from? What does that mean to you? Uh, it's uh, when, when did I start? I think I was 2016. I wrote up that handle. I was just trying to, I was trying to design a website and I was like, oh, what should I name this website? And then I, that's, I don't know, it just came to my head. I was like, let me just use this now, temporary name. And that temporary name sort of like became my life. Um, learning to human is basically learning how to be a bit more human in the modern world. So, like this day and age, we have developed and created so much, especially for people like us and people tuning into this podcast and watching clips of handstand presses on, online. Um, this might not apply to everyone, but it applies to a lot of people. We've become so distant from who we are, like as a species, that we've, we now like neglect and like almost purpose. Like uh, not purposefully, but intentionally disregard things and shame them for things that that's in, intuitions and feelings that we we naturally get as human beings and or should be either pursuing or just actions that we should be doing, like exercise and, and eating food. You get told that you're you're obsessed. 
if you if you do exercise if you uh, and if you try not to eat specific foods you're like oh you're obsessed what do you mean i'm obsessed oh you're you're obsessed with health or like you're a health freak like what do you mean i'm i'm not a health freak i'm just not a sick freak like i i just i prefer not to be sick i would rather be human <laughs> um but like there's so like things have changed so drastically in the world and in in developed places where we we're essentially we're humans that don't live like humans anymore um but i don't don't expect people to like go back to the cave of age like you can't just go living in caves again and and like starting fires with i mean you could go and start in fires with logs and it's quite nice actually making your own fire having a barbecue it's great but um you can't i'm not saying like people need to go back to like living in these uh drastic environments like you still have a house it's just like it's but you know be be human in the modern world um and i, I think it's quite a hard, quite a hard balance to find because technology is great like technology's helped us do so much and still having us do so much it helps me do what i do today like my coaching without technology i couldn't do what i do but i still need to find the balance of what it means to be a human being on this planet at the same time um because if i don't then i am going to run into modern day problems and modern day diseases and sicknesses um which are not going to then allow me to do the things i enjoy doing like helping other people so yeah i mean learning to human is that, that that's kind of where it kind of stemmed for me it was like noticing that people aren't really human anymore in terms of their actions and what they eat and and how they move if they move i don't think uh, i'm not like a, a big fan of you have to move this way you have to do spine day every day and blah 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 um but i do think you know people do need to be physically active to a certain extent so that they don't just like waste away um and also to just eat foods that they can find in their local environments uh, and that aren't being imported from across the world um just to satisfy their their beliefs or urges if that makes sense it's just it's not how we've been evolved or designed as a species and you'll always you'll always see the difference between the the health of humans who do live a certain way and those who don't yeah and health's a big one for me it's a, it's a really big value because like the healthier you are the healthier your environment is and your community and mm. your family and the healthy and like the, the more you can the more you can help people and the more you can do what you want to do so it's like if you're if you're like intentionally like going towards sickness you're kind of doing yourself and the rest of humanity a disservice mm. so it's it's not selfish to like want to be healthy it's selfish to to like not want to be healthy if that makes sense yeah, it does. And um, yeah. yeah, I think those were beautiful thoughts. And it's sort of almost why spearfishing as well is a beautiful art in itself, because you're going out there yeah. doing all the physical activity to get the food. And you will only probably just hunt enough for yourself and maybe just for a few of your love, loved ones as well to, to share with. And, you know, every, it's like a yeah a beautiful reward for all the effort that that you would expend to, to go to to get it yeah yeah exactly it's um it's yeah it's a nice little add-on i mean obviously i had that exposure as a child and not everyone does you know if you mm -hmm. if you live in the city and you don't have family in the village and that village lifestyle then all you know is the city lifestyle and the only unless you go traveling 
all you know is what you see on YouTube and what you see on documentaries on Netflix. So you might think you're being educated on the world by watching these things, but you've never experienced it in the flesh. Mm. So it's, it's, it's very easy to avoid doing the things which, um, which essentially designed who you are as a species because you've only ever been nurtured in a city-based environment and context. Yeah. So yeah, I, I do love the spear fishing. Yeah. And, you know, we're about to draw this year to a close and I wanted to ask you about what you have on the horizons for the next year, you know, any planned movements, yeah. you know, workshops, teaching opportunities, where you're going to be. So you mentioned in the first sentence that I'll be coming over to Australia. Touch wood, that is the plan. Um, I've been wanting to come to Australia for a very long time. Uh, really good people from what I can see um, online. Uh, and I've made some friends there again online and met some that sort of came over to the UK. So I'd love to come to Australia and meet meet a lot of people and kind of like have a bit of a nice experience of that lifestyle. Uh, that's on the cards for hopefully January or February um, for a good five to six months. I actually need to do my application today. I've just reminded myself and I'm applying for my Australian visa today. Uh, and then, I mean, my online coaching, I'm, I'm still doing, I haven't capped it yet. So I'm always taking on new students there for anyone that did want to work with me, but I'm, would also, I'm also planning to host my retreat again. So this year I did my first ever learning to human retreat where I kind of, expose people to my style of training with the handstands um flexibility and strength training and to be honest it was all my online students there anyway so they were they already knew how we were training and i managed to get them to dig deeper into their own practices which is great but also a bit of my lifestyle in regards to food um so i, I we were cooking for them three meals a day well mm -hmm. two meals a day but we ended up cooking <laughs> three meals a day for most of it uh and they, they were eating the same way that i would eat and they were being exposed to that. It was great because they, they got to like take some ideas home and stuff and start changing their own life habits a little bit. Um, uh, but yeah, the retreat was really good. It worked really well. So I'm going to open it to the public in 2023. I'll be announcing that soon. We still need to put the, still need to make the the page and stuff on the website and get that sorted. I hate all the admin side of things, but it's got to be <laughs> done. Um, they're the main to be honest, the, the, probably the two main things I'm excited about is coming to Australia or at least traveling over to that side of the world. Um, hopefully the visa gets accepted and uh, doing the retreat again. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to have you over here in Australia. And, you know, like I've mentioned, love for you to pass through this Melbourne area as well um, because it will be yeah. awesome to have the opportunity now that we've uh, chatted to you know, train uh, together with you and, you know, probably pick your brain a few more things in person as we're, as we're doing things. And who knows, maybe when you're in Australia, you might have some in-person teaching opportunities that come to mind as well. So yeah. uh, if so, I'd, I'd very much be looking forward to that as, as well. Yeah. I would, I would love to do some workshops. Um, if there's, if there's a gyms out there that would, not want to host me that'd be fun but uh but yes i would love to meet you and train together and maybe go go do some spear fishing you said you've been before so that'll be fun uh, that, <laughs> at, least, that, at least go for a snorkel that would be a treat well yeah. er, Ernie, this has been yeah really lovely to speak with you i think we covered 
a hell of a lot of areas and yeah, we did go deep into the the press. And so I got a lot out of that myself, just from just hearing your points of view of how you like to dev- to develop it and approach it, which has been, um, which is different to, to mine. So that's definitely added to my own understanding. So I do have to really thank you for being so open and sharing all your knowledge there in that area and also your story, you know, really enjoyed all that, you know, you've been through a lot as well. Um, and I think for a lot of people out there, they'll go get a lot out from that story as well. So yeah, really appreciate you for sharing your time here today. No problem at all. And uh, thanks very much for having me on. I feel very privileged to to be on your on your podcast. And I assume if anyone wants to reach out, just like Instagram or is there a website that you prefer? Um, I I respond to every single message I get on Instagram, unless it's one of the creepy ones about feet and stuff like that. Don't send me any <laughs> of them. But, uh, but uh, yeah, if you message me on Instagram, I will, I will respond. Uh, yeah, learning to human is the the easiest way to reach out to me. Awesome. Well, already, thank you once again for joining us on the Passive Hang. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. That's all for today, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Thanks to Erdi for sharing his time, insights, and journey on the podcast. I really enjoyed re-listening back over to that one, and I hope you guys got something out of that episode as well. Remember, if you enjoy the Passive Hang, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, share it on your story, on the social media. It really helps me get the word out there, helps me connect with more people. And also, I'd love to connect with you as well. So remember, you can always find me on Instagram. That's at P at P-H-A-O-N-P, or on thepassivehang.com. And send me a message, ask me a question. I'd love to hear from you. All right, guys. Well, I'll see you in the next episode.